Hi, everyone, and welcome to Urban Green's podcast, Building Tomorrow, where we're bringing you conversations with climate solvers. Every day, we meet people who make a big difference in the built environment and are moving us closer to a low-carbon future, and we want you to hear their stories. My name is Ellen Honigstock. I'm the Senior Director of Education here at Urban Green, and today's episode of Building Tomorrow is a recording of an interview we did with Dr. Erica Avrami back in May 2022. Dr. Avrami is a preservationist and planner and the James Marston Fitch Assistant Professor of Historic Preservation at Columbia University's Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. We came to Dr. Avrami after reading her paper called Energy and Historic Buildings Toward Evidence-Based Policy Reform, which examines the implications of a changing legislative landscape on historic preservation in New York City, which is right up our alley. We had always wanted a podcast, so we recorded this episode as an experiment. Now I'm so happy to include it in our actual podcast feed. The hosts are Nate Rogers, a senior associate at Buyer Blinder Bell, and Kate Regev, who is now a project manager at Zubatkin Owner Representation. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Nate Rogers. I'm a senior associate at Bayer Blinder Bell, which is an architecture, preservation, and planning firm headquartered here in New York City. And I sit in the higher education and cultural studio. And uh, I'm particularly interested in the relationship of new architecture with old architecture and historic preservation and its relationship with sustainability. And I'm Kate Regev. I'm an assistant project manager at Zubatkin Owner Representation. We are an owner's representation firm that works primarily with cultural and nonprofit clients to help carry out their capital projects and uh, renovation. And I'm also an adjunct faculty member at Columbia's preservation program. I'm so excited to have the opportunity to speak with you both today, and I'm grateful to Urban Green for the invitation. My name is Erica Avrami. I'm a faculty member at Columbia's Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. I'm actually based in the Historic Preservation Program, and I'm also a research affiliate at the Center for Sustainable Urban Development at Columbia's New Climate School. I'm here today to talk about a study that I undertook with Jennifer Most, Anagasha, and Shreya Goshal. It was a study that took about three, almost four years, where we were interested in looking at the intersection of historic buildings and climate, particularly around the question of energy consumption and greenhouse gas emissions. And we looked first at questions of policy. For a long time, there have been exemptions of historic buildings from energy codes. There've also been this longstanding rhetoric about historic buildings being greener because they're older. And we really wanted to interrogate that to understand the origins of that. And then to also get to its implications today. Since the 1970s, we've seen these exemptions. Now, decades later, in the context of New York City, we have the Climate Mobilization Act, which essentially is regulating greenhouse gases and does not afford exemptions for historic buildings. So we really wanted to understand what this changing policy landscape over essentially half a century created and what that means, not only for historic buildings, but for 
existing buildings writ large. So to start us off, of course, Erica, thank you so much for joining us. Nate and I are really excited to delve into kind of the, the substance of your paper. We wanted to talk a little bit about your study, which you did with Jennifer Most, Anna Gasha, and Shreya Goshal, and how it delves into the relationship between historic buildings and the policy landscape, and specifically when it comes to energy use and greenhouse gas emissions. At first glance, this sounds very niche, but why is it important for professional working in the built environment to pay attention to this? Why is this relevant to our work? Terrific way to start. Even though I'm a preservationist, I want to take a step back and say that so much of the challenge we face today with regard to climate change is about decarbonizing and adapting existing buildings. The impetus behind this work was to understand the way in which preservation and preservationists play a role in decarbonizing and adapting the existing built environment. So much of where we focus education, because I'm a professor, that's the perspective I have, is on new design and new construction. And how do we design greener buildings? How do we design net zero buildings? But the real complicating factor are existing buildings. They're already here. They are inhabited. People have ascribed value to them. They have place attachment. And so the existing built environment is really the more difficult challenge. We know through all sorts of newer studies that there's also a lot of embodied carbon that's bound up in existing buildings. We embarked on this because of that concern for existing buildings, which really needs to span all professions. As preservationists, we felt that we could bring an informative lens to the question. If you have all of these professions that are much more focused on learning about new design and new construction, you have at the other end of the spectrum this group of historic preservationists who are really focused on those questions of value and importance of materials and original construction and the values that people associate with the place because of what happened there or who lived there or who, even who designed it. But that lens really helps us understand, again, this larger question of place attachment. But it also provides a way of looking at the question of decarbonizing and adapting existing buildings because you have to figure out the community aspect. You have to figure out the economics aspect. And you also have to be very familiar with all of those materials, all of those historic systems, all of those ways in which transition happens in buildings over very long life cycles. And that's really what we do in preservation. We're about extending building life cycles indefinitely through this act of designating and listing buildings and then constantly restoring, renovating, rehabilitating. What our hope was initially in this was getting to that place where we understood how preservation can take an active role in decarbonizing the existing built environment and what we can learn from that enterprise. And the first thing we really wanted to look at were questions of policy because historic buildings in many ways are treated under special conditions within building codes and other forms of legislation and regulation. Erica, that's fascinating. I think one of the things that you raised in your in your paper was the social history. So why historic buildings have these baked in exemptions in the model energy code. If you could talk a bit more about what those exemptions entail and how those get adopted across jurisdictions and also why that even exists. What about the 1970s led us to today and why these carve outs are in the codes? I think it's important to 
recognize, especially for folks who may not be based in New York City, that we have energy performance codes. And in the context of New York City and many other cities across the world, we have new greenhouse gas laws. And the energy performance codes here in the United States emerged in the 1970s as a result of the oil crisis and are focused on reducing energy consumption, making buildings more energy efficient. At that time, the dependence on oil was a national security issue. And so we saw a tremendous amount of policy action at the federal government level to reduce that dependency through reducing energy consumption. We had a series of laws that came into play and model codes as well to achieve that. The residential and commercial model energy codes at the national level were an important first step. Beyond that, and on the preservation side, we also had changes to the tax code in 1976, which actually changed and almost flipped the way in which incentives had previously been provided to demolish and build new, and instead provided for amortization and depreciation that incentivized people to renovate existing buildings. And that was behind this idea that those existing buildings contained a tremendous amount of embodied energy. And by avoiding demolition, you were avoiding energy expenditure. The historic preservation community was actually very active in that. There were studies that were done in the late 1960s and 1970s that started to create the baseline information for the embodied energy of building materials. And then the preservation community through the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation looked at how that translated to existing buildings. In addition, there were a series of operating energy studies looking at how existing buildings were performing in terms of energy consumption through heating, electrification, cooking, etc. All of that conspired to make energy conservation an important federal investment. And so those model codes got established. There were also weatherization programs that got established to help reduce the operating energy consumption. There were also additional tax credits that came into play for the rehabilitation of existing older buildings, plus these add-ons for historic buildings. All of that created this foundation for valorizing existing buildings, but especially historic buildings. What ended up happening though, was that there were concerns and some small studies that looked at how energy retrofits and weatherization might in fact change buildings and potentially impact the historic fabric of buildings that were recognized as important to preserve. One of the interesting ways that was characterized was that buildings have to perform to different standards. They have different performance attributes. It has to perform safely so that people have egress in a fire. We have to have accessibility for people with disabilities. All of these are different performance standards that have been applied to buildings over time. And the argument was made that this concept of heritage is a performance attribute. In order to perform as heritage, it was important to retain as much original fabric as possible. At least that was the, the thought at that time. And so weighing energy against performance as heritage, heritage trumped energy, in part because we didn't have as many historic buildings. We hadn't listed and designated as many buildings at that time. The National Historic Preservation Act had only been in place since 1966. The lists were not quite as long yet, and we weren't protecting as many buildings in the built environment. That idea of 
exempting historic buildings from energy code compliance actually got baked into the ASHRAE and IECC model codes for residential and commercial buildings at the national level. And that trickled down to the state level and then again down to the municipal level. The criteria to be considered historic in these model codes, maybe if you could talk a bit more about that, it's a pretty big umbrella, right? Right. It's, it, it basically means anything that is recognized as being eligible or listed on the National Register. And the National Register, it talks about there's 90,000 properties, but that includes vast historic districts. So really we're talking about over a million resources, potentially buildings in some cases, not all of them are buildings for sure. We need to understand that that is critical and, and part of what we did in the context of New York City in this study was we wanted to understand what that meant in New York City. A lot of the focus is on municipal level historic buildings that are designated by the Landmarks Preservation Committee, uh, Commission rather, and we wanted to understand National Register, which is a slightly different process and fewer barriers to getting on the National Register. And so we looked at the number of properties, but that really doesn't help us understand energy. So we realized that we needed to look at historic space as built area, right? because that's how we deal with energy and that you know, BTU per square foot. And so we began to spatialize historic space across the city and realized that even though generally most major, major metropolitan cities in the U.S., according to the National Trust, has about 4% of designated properties. When we looked at National Register and we looked at New York City, we realized that those numbers were quite high through the built area lens. About 16% of the city's built area, square footage, is National Register eligible or listed, meaning it is potentially waived from the energy code. Almost a third, 32% of Manhattan's built square footage is National Register eligible or listed, which means that it is exempt from energy code, potentially. And there's very few barriers to getting those waivers and those exemptions. Essentially, in the context of New York City, you just need to prove that your, your property is on the National Register. And we were shocked by that. You know, I'm so grateful, and another shout out to my co-researchers, Jennifer Most, Anna Gasha, and Shreya Goshal for their collaborative effort in this research, and especially Jennifer Most, who really did all of the geospatial analysis to allow us to understand that at the square footage level, which gives us a, an entirely different lens and really ups the idea of dealing with energy efficiency and decarbonization from the building level to a more systemic level. So much of our work is case by case, right? What do we need to do in this building to reduce energy, do energy conversion, decarbonize, go to all electric pathways. But the fact of the matter is, is when you look across the city's built landscape, you get a very different picture at a systemic level. And that really kind of shocked us. Well, and so let's take a step back. You use New York City as a case study. What about New York City makes it relevant for the rest of the country? Why did you select New York City? Was it because there was a lot of data that was available about it? Was it because it's at the forefront of building codes? I guess, what was the reason why you chose New York City and how is it pertinent for, for a broader nationwide study? I think what's interesting about New York City is twofold on both the preservation side as well as the climate action side. On the preservation side, New York City has one of the earliest substantive 
laws in relationship to preservation and the one that's sort of been tested up through the courts. There's this strong data set for preservation of historic buildings in New York City. We also in New York City have Pluto, another strong geospatial data set that is really helpful for doing this kind of research. But really what was critical was the 2019 Climate Mobilization Act. The fact that New York City was at the vanguard of regulating greenhouse gas emissions from buildings. On the whole, across the country, generally globally, you'll see estimates of sort of 35 to 40% of greenhouse gas emissions are because of buildings, because of the built environment. In the context of New York City, it's actually 68, almost 70% of greenhouse gas emissions are attributed to buildings in New York City. So buildings are a big climate problem in New York City. And when we say buildings, we mean existing buildings, not, you know, this idea of designing new. How, again, do you take that step back and think about decarbonization? New York City had tried in many different ways to improve this through its own energy code, for example, you know, beyond the state. Uh, and the fact that actually more than 10 years ago, New York City stopped affording waivers for New York City landmarks when it came to energy, the, the, the city energy code. But it was not able to exempt the National Register building. So New York City, in that moment of climate and preservation intersection, was trying to close a loophole. But again, when we, when we really looked at the square footage, Mm, that, that really affected, you know, less than 1% of the properties in the city because so many properties are on both uh, the National Register and listed as New York mm -hmm. City landmarks. Mm -hmm. So closing that loophole, it really didn't matter mm -hmm. because the loophole was way too big. Right. <laughs> and then again, on the climate front, because New York City is working to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and started years ago now on benchmarking collecting data, trying to understand which were the most egregious emitters. It's one of the reasons why you know, Urban Green has been so instrumental in advancing this cause, in part because of the research they've done, originally starting with buildings over 50,000 square feet, but then recognizing that there were these sort of middle to large size buildings that were also problematic with regard to greenhouse gases, and so bringing the benchmarking down to that. And now the Climate Mobilization Act is basically requiring these larger buildings over 25,000 square feet to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. We know that this is a challenge, particularly for these larger buildings that have to do large-scale conversions and that your targets decrease over time. <laughs> Property owners are really concerned, and, and there's a fair number of historic buildings that are in that pool, well over 3,000 buildings, and certainly many concentrated in Manhattan. And we used a few cases from Manhattan in the study, just as illustrations to really understand how this affects buildings like Lever House, Seagram's Building. These are iconic buildings on the New York City landscape, but they raise a lot of questions now because while they have technically been exempt from energy codes, they're not exempt from the greenhouse gas law. 
So we have this steep climb for some of these buildings that have been recognized as historic because they've been able to operate now for decades without having to comply with energy codes. Reducing energy is also a way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It's going to be a, a real challenge. To ask a follow-up, one, one of the really interesting pieces of research that was in the paper was this question about whether existing buildings have a lot of virtues uh, when it comes to operating energy efficiency. And there was some research done in the 70s, as you mentioned, around the time of the oil crisis. But you and your team looked at that again. Maybe you could talk a bit more about that in particular relation to the idea that relative to the popular consciousness of a historic building, the lines between historic buildings and existing buildings are getting blurrier because of this rolling 50-year clock for eligibility for National Register qualifications. We're now talking about buildings from the 1960s, the 1970s, that can now be considered historic for the purposes of um, these energy model code carve-outs. That's a, that's a really important question, and I think we need to step back and talk a little bit about the rhetoric we hear around older buildings. Mm -hmm. In the late 70s, the National Trust had this fabulous poster and this kind of catch-all phrase of the greenest building is the one already built. And again, at that time, this idea of both embodied energy and operating energy was vested in reducing our reliance on oil. And so by saving and revitalizing buildings, we were essentially trying to secure the nation because of this oil dependency. And so there were a lot of different ways in which policy came into play through the Housing and Community Development Act in 1974, if I remember correctly. They were trying to, again, focus energies, focus resources, I should say, on revitalizing historic urban cores or older urban cores in the, in the country. Through that tax code, it was about incentivizing the reuse of older buildings. The idea of the older building is greener sort of was based on this embodied energy concept and aggregated across larger landscapes like urban cores. But it also was based on this idea that somehow older buildings perform better mm -hmm. from an energy perspective. So consume less energy per square foot than newer buildings. And if you think about the 1970s, we're shifting into postmodern era. We've seen this critical divorce between architectural design and context, environmental context, right? Because we've now mechanized building systems to the point where it doesn't matter if it's hot and it doesn't matter which way you orient the building and it doesn't matter your cycles of rain or, or et cetera with regard to heating and cooling. You can totally control that through your building systems. That divorce meant for this huge shift in the amount of energy buildings consumed. And so in the 1970s, the estimate was that buildings were consuming actually about 50% of the energy needed by the nation in the U.S. About 35% was operating energy and about 15% embodied energy estimated at that time. So those two things, embodied and operating, became really important. And so the idea that the older buildings had this embodied energy seemed clear. We didn't yet know its significance across the life cycle of a building. Sure. Now we know that embodied energy tends to be a much smaller percentage than operating energy when we're looking at this through a life cycle assessment. But on the operating energy side, there are a series of studies, a lot of them sponsored by the government, by the federal government, as well as manufacturers and others, to really look at how buildings were performing or were their typologies 
of buildings that were performing better? There, were there buildings built of different kinds of materials or different uses or different designs that performed better than others? And age became a metric of several studies that looked at major metropolitan areas, and including one study that looked across the country. And nearly all of them found that age was not really a factor. In fact, one of them found a correlation with a building being at least 30 years old and potentially being more efficient because it's gone through a major renovation, <laughs> usually by the time it's 30. But there was one study in New York City that started with this, this pool of more than 4,000 buildings, but then focused down on 44 office buildings in the city that found that the older age of a building correlated to less energy consumption per square foot. And so that really was seized upon mm -hmm. by the preservation community. Mm -hmm. And I'm a preservationist. I hesitate to speak ill of, of my field, but it was a moment where this single study really served their rhetoric and their mission. Mm -hmm. And so that got echoed. It got echoed by the National Park Service. It got echoed by the National Trust, citing that one study, none of the other studies, just that one study, <laughs> that, oh, nope, we now have proof that these buildings are less efficient and consume more energy. But at that time, what was seen as being less efficient were really buildings around the 1970s, right? Because that's where they were, that these newer buildings, from a preservation perspective, in order to qualify for the National Register, a building must be 50 years old. And there's a nomination process and an eligibility process. But we're now looking at historic buildings that were built in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of age as being a way of determining whether a building is more energy efficient or not is really problematic. Mm -hmm. it, and, and we actually ran a test of that in the study by looking at a number of historic buildings in New York City and looking at energy consumption data from the benchmarking to try and test that and found, nope, there was really no difference between historic buildings and non-historic buildings. We didn't see a correlation to age. We need to step away from this mm -hmm. rhetoric of mm -hmm. the older building is always the greenest building, and we need to be thinking instead about understanding buildings over life cycles. And that's where this question of embodied energy, I think, is becoming increasingly complicated because we tend to look at initial embodied energy. I mentioned before there were these studies that happened in the late 60s and early 70s that established baselines for the amount of embodied energy, what we would we might refer to as embodied carbon today in building materials. Mm -hmm. And so that allows us to calculate what it would cost to replace an existing building with a new building, right? By using that embodied energy information and saying, okay, we have this existing building. It's got this much brick and this many windows, et cetera, et cetera. If we were to replace it, this is how much embodied energy it would require. There have been studies on avoided impacts and how long it takes to then really get to a point where it makes sense to replace a building. All of that's based on replacement value and on these initial embodied energy calculations. What we're seeing now are more and more studies on recurrent embodied energy. And that's essentially when you're looking across the life cycle of a building, you've got this initial embodied energy to construct it, right? And that's kind of invested. 
done. Can't really get that back. It's a sunk cost in economic terms. And then you have operating energy that just keeps increasing, increasing, increasing. But over the life cycle of the building, you replace your roof, you do repairs, you make an addition, you replace the floor, you repaint, you might need to replace the glazing. All of that incurs additional embodied energy over the life cycle. And even if you're doing an energy retrofit where you're changing out the mechanical system, let's say, you know, a different furnace or you're putting in a heat pump, all of that incurs additional embodied energy as well from the production of that equipment. And so recurrent embodied energy is this additional calculation over the, the life cycle of a building that it's tougher to use a sort of replacement value because when you do that, when you do that replacement value and you talk about initial embodied energy, you're only talking about what you see in the building today. Mm -hmm. You're not talking about what was there over the life cycle, what might have been demolished, what might have gone into landfill, what might have been recycled in the case of steel, for example. So recurrent embodied energy is something that we really need to get our heads around. Preservationists are in a good position to inform that process mm -hmm. because we, again, are always thinking about how buildings are evolving over time. We're thinking, what change was made and we're the ones that are often called in for these older existing buildings to think about how do we retrofit how do we change this that calculation though is really complicated mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. it means that we've got to be tracking change over time to a building we certainly have mechanisms for that i mean that the permitting process are these moments when buildings are required to go in and show like we're doing this major renovation. Life cycle assessment tools are getting much more sophisticated. And I think that that idea of, of calculating actual embodied energy, not just the replacement value by looking at initial embodied energy, but actual is important. Because in some cases, studies have shown that recurrent embodied energy can be twice as much as initial embodied energy. If you think about that, over the life cycle of buildings, studies use about 70 years for the life cycle of buildings. Preservationists were, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's not there. It's infinity, right? <laughs> we're just keeping these things for as long as possible. There is an accountability to account, right? Mm -hmm. To to really make sure that we're bringing that together. And I think the way in which the construction industry and design industry are shifting is going to lead us in that direction. The more we move towards circular economies in the construction field, the more we have to do those kinds of calculations because we're going to be caring about what gets demolished, what gets removed in a renovation, what gets replaced in a renovation. And we're going to need more sophisticated data and metrics to be able to make the determination that, yes, it makes sense to renovate this building as opposed to deconstruct it and build anew or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I think that's really an area that we need to move forward in. But, 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 operating energy is still the thing that we need to stop being so egregious about right now. The embodied part is going to require a lot more data and a lot more thinking about systems. But I think the benchmarking and the way in which we've seen operating energy and greenhouse gas emissions becoming regulated through that systematic collection of data can be transferred as a learning opportunity toward the embodied carbon side. We still need to decarbonize the existing built environment. And that really is, again, the thing that we can stop today. I think one thing that a lot of people think about preservation, and as we mentioned earlier, is that it feels niche. So I think one question we have is about 
how do we broaden the field um, and how do we widen our lens beyond just looking at the historic building? How do we make it more interdisciplinary? And are there some kinds of initiatives that you're involved with maybe at Columbia that, that speak to that? Absolutely, and thank you for that question. In my own trajectory as a professional, I sort of started in architecture and moved to preservation and ended up in, in urban planning and public policy, in part because the questions I was asking, I couldn't effectively really dive into or, or deal with with the tools of a single discipline. Part of why I work so much in the field of historic preservation is because it requires us to think about the existing built environment in different ways. Again, because we're thinking about how people ascribe value to places, what are those social and spatial relationships? What does that mean in terms of economics, in terms of the environment, in terms of how we think about social and, and community development? This idea of the existing built environment, I think is, is so fascinating and so complicated because it involves all of that. Right? These are inhabited places, the places we work, the places we live. And so in order to decarbonize or in order to adapt, for example, in response to flooding or desertification, for example, we need to be thinking in, in interdisciplinary ways. And in Columbia, we have been trying to push on that front. There's a new climate school that's been established within the university, the first climate school in the country. And... I and colleagues received some seed monies to establish a network. So I co-direct this network with Fenioski Penyamura, who is in the engineering school. And the intention is to really bring together researchers, scholars, practitioners, faculty from all different departments, whether that's architecture and engineering, law, social work, public affairs, public health, to really think about what it means to adapt and decarbonize the existing built environment. Again, so much of what we're teaching, even in architecture and engineering, which are at the core of this, is focused on new design and new construction. And as preservationists, we find ourselves sort of like in the back of the classroom trying to raise our hands, going, well, but, but we work with existing buildings. <laughs> you know, we can tell you how those systems work. We can tell you why those materials fail. It's about bridging that divide and understanding where the preservation field can, can inform and play a role, but also how we step out of our comfort zone, right? And recognize that not everything has the same sort of aesthetic or historic values that we use to determine whether something should be eligible for the National Register or be a landmark. But it also means that a range of disciplines need to reconcile the fact that whether a place is historic or not, whether a building is on a register or not, doesn't mean that people haven't attached value to it. Mm -hmm. And that place attachment, I think, is really complicating in economic ways, in social ways, in environmental ways. And so that interdisciplinary nature of the work on decarbonizing the existing built environment, I think, is critical. The intention of this network was to get colleagues from different perspectives to come together and really begin to understand how do we evolve education?
how do we evolve pedagogy, how do we evolve our teaching, which you can't really divorce from how do we evolve the research, right? Because you need the knowledge, you need the data to really understand what you bring into the classroom, how you prepare the next generation of professionals. So that's what we're working on. We, we just started up the network this past fall and we're hoping to expand it throughout the university and then moving beyond to professional organizations as well. Great. Well, we want to uh, thank Erica and the Urban Green Council for hosting this event. Certainly more to come, hopefully, from the network. It sounds amazing. Well, again, thank you both. It's been a great uh, chat. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for letting me talk so much. And thank you to Urban Green for making it happen. Thank you for listening to this episode. I'd like to thank Urban Green staff for their assistance and our members and sponsors for their support. If you'd like to become a member or a sponsor, please visit urbangreencouncil.org. Thanks again for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider liking and subscribing to it in your favorite podcast app so that you'll get immediate access to all upcoming conversations. See you next time.